one step in this long progress. It's been a team effort by us all the way. We're but part of the whole team has worked so hard. The shuttle era will come to an end, but they won't stop inspiring, and they won't stop being a part of the fabric of America. We choose to go to the moon. Alright, and welcome everybody to another episode of the Talking Space Podcast. This is Talking Space episode 1404 for the week of Monday, April 18th, 2022. I'm Sawyer Rosenstein, and joining me tonight is Gene McCulkle. Welcome, Gene. Hey, Sawyer, ready to go ahead and roll up our sleeves and talk some space tonight. Absolutely. And welcome as well, Mark Ratterman. Keep coming back to that Talking Space idea, but tell me, what is a Talking Spacer? I think that's the gaps that we put between our audio when we're talking is the spacer. But <laughs> <laughs> I'm Tish. Thank you. I'll be here all night. So let's, uh, let's jump right into actual space news and topics then. And we will begin with the most recent crew launch to the International Space Station. And that was the Axiom 1 mission, affectionately known as AX-1. That mission was not a NASA mission. It was privately funded through SpaceX and primarily through Axiom Space uh, on the first ever all-private crew mission to the International Space Station. The Falcon 9 launched from the Kennedy Space Center Friday, April 8th, 2022 at 11.17 a.m. Eastern Time into the beautifully clear Florida skies. The crew launching aboard the Crew Dragon Endeavor, which is now docked to the International Space Station, for its third mission with crew on. Now, the crew of four that is currently at the International Space Station includes uh, former NASA astronaut Michael Lopez Alegria, who is basically known as MLA for short, uh, as well as uh, American Larry Connor, who was a real estate and tech entrepreneur, uh, Canadian financier Mark Pathy, as well as Israeli businessman Etan Stevi. Uh, and in case you're wondering, he is now the second Israeli astronaut to launch into space. The first was Alain Ramon, unfortunately, aboard the space shuttle Columbia, which was lost on reentry in 2003. So a whole lot of meaning there behind that as well. But of course, the other big meaning is that this is a private mission, but it is in no way a tourist mission. On board, each of the four of them are conducting specific experiments during their 10-day mission, which includes eight days docked to the International Space Station using some of the tools aboard the orbiting laboratory to help them complete this important research and science. Yeah, Sawyer, I'm glad you, you mentioned that, too, that this is not a tourist flight. It was one of the things that I really, really tried to drive home with the BBC. I was on their morning drive time program at, um, I guess, 
back here it was silly o'clock in the morning, but over there I think it was like five or six o'clock in the morning there. Uh, it um, they were talking about literally this being a tourist mission because the the astronauts themselves you know paid to be on it. And one of the things I really, really tried to drive home with that audience, and I'm going to try to do the same thing here, is that this is not a tourist mission. This isn't Dennis Tito throwing $6 million, you know, $60 million down and saying, hey, I'm going to go, go to space or, or anything like that. This is something completely different. It was something that Michael Lopez Alegria himself really, really tried to drive home with the press before the flight. Said these are, you know, individuals who have specific experiments that they really want to perform that they've been assigned, and they also have some experiments on board that they themselves have selected for various groups here uh, back on Earth. There's there's several entities that each one of the the crew members are are working with uh, to perform experiments, and this is really really the beginning of Axum wanting to start commercialized space, you know, to get individuals to number one, you know, pay their way to a space station and number two, be prepared to work on behalf of another organization. And that's kind of what they're trying to, to get the start of. The other part of this is Axum wants to go ahead and get th three modules of their own attached to the International Space Station before the International Space Station program ends. I believe the first module they want to launch is scheduled to be lofted, uh, I think, the end of 2024, sometime in the fourth quarter. Uh, I should interject that the individual company that's building the modules for Axum is the same company that has built the MPLMs, the same company that has already built a couple of the modules on the uh, on the International Space Station, uh, uh, Thales Alina. So not exactly a slouch arrangement they also Axum themselves, not exactly a slouch arrangement them either. They have, one of the founders, for instance, is none other than Mike Suffordini, who is also the former ISS, uh, believe, I forget what is it, you know, a mission manager or a program manager, I'm sorry. I just couldn't remember his, his exact title when he, he was with NASA. Um, so he, you know, he is quite familiar with the International Space Station. There are other individuals in Axum too that are also very well connected with 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 NASA or have been in the past. Peggy Whitson, for instance, who is, by the way, going to be the commander of the next mission. She's uh, the director of human spaceflight for Axum. Rex Waldheim, uh, no stranger to space him another former astronaut he the last mission he flew on was sts 135 uh he's chief of safety and mission assurance i'm just looking at the website here of course michael lopez alegria who is the commander of this flight he is vice president of business development for the for the company uh and they have some other interesting names here 
here as well. Charlie Bolden is a consultant for them, uh, former Na- NASA administrator, former NASA astronaut. Uh, Mary Lynn Didamore, who is uh, their executive vice president of government operations and strategic communications. Again, not exactly, you know, stranger to space. She. So they've got a lot of star power, if you will, no pun intended. Um, so this is serious. This is a serious bid. This is a real serious company. And they are really, really trying to make the dream of commercial space happen in conjunction with NASA. Are they part? I believe they, I, I don't know if they're they're outside of that whole contract that NASA had with three other companies that are also trying to loft their own space stations. But this one, this, this arrangement is going to be a little different. Uh, this is going to the, the two modules or should I say the two research modules that they're going to have on board will be part of the international space space station for a little bit, at least toward the end of its life. And as soon as that third propulsion power and propulsion module gets attached, they want to go ahead and detach the, their, their, uh, their space station and fly on their own. And now you could go ahead and book time on board that spacecraft for research. Or if you even want to shoot a movie, you can do it up there. Any, any purpose that, that, you know, you really want to go ahead and pay for and, uh, that space station is going to be uh, positioned for it. So this is really, really exciting. This is this is really a historic mission, and uh, uh, I'm I'm glad to see you know Axum really, really start getting things off the ground. Uh, they do have, I believe, this is going to be. They have four missions, I believe, Sawyer left after, three missions after this. Three after this, there was four oh. originally purchased and scheduled. Right. And I believe two of the four seats on the next mission are are spoken for. Um, I know Peggy Whitson's going to be the commander of that flight. Um, I, for, I and I think one, the other seat is filled. I, I forget the the gentleman's name that that will be the pilot on that flight. But the two mission specialist seats are opened. Although I think one of them, I'm hearing now, might be uh, used in. One of the Discovery Channel's prize, you know, prize as a Discovery Channel prize on who wants there. There's apparently this game show they're they're trying to this reality show they, they they're trying to put together called Who Wants to Be an Astronaut? And I think the one of those seats may be going to the winner of that that particular uh, that particular show. I, I, I want to look that up, but by the way, the, uh, the second person who was selected for Axiom two, uh, his name is John Schaffner. He's Thank a you. pilot champion GT racer. And according to the Axiom team, an active supporter of life science research from Tennessee. That sounds a little bit like, uh, uh, one of the mission, the, the pilot on, uh, on this flight, um, Larry Connor, he's also a bit of an adventurer too. So, uh, I'm starting to see a little bit of a trend with uh, with the pilots of these flights. but uh. Yeah, and I do also want to point out, while we're talking about crews for a second here, that uh, SpaceX is continuing its tradition of bringing the zero-G indicator, which was pretty much tradition for almost forever, dating back to Yuri Gagarin over in the Russian Space Agency in Roscosmos. Uh, 
SpaceX is bringing back the zero-G indicator here for American crew launches. And the one for this flight uh, was a dog named Caramel, or Caramel, depending on where you're from, uh, who is the mascot for the Montreal Children's Hospital Foundation. And again, you can get your own. There's a limited number by donating between $150 to $200 to research at the Children's Hospital. When that showed up, I thought everybody thought it was a bunny. Yes, they, a lot of people thought at first it might have been Bambi or Thumper from Bambi, the uh, an actual Disney character. But no, it is not. It is uh, to help raise awareness for a children's hospital in Canada. Now, I got to say, I was at the launch uh, covering it for Talking Space. And it was very interesting because, again, the, this is the second all-private crew launch that I've been to, but the first that actually was bound for the International Space Station, because again, it was the first ever of its kind. Um, there was definitely a lot of excitement going around. It felt very different from a traditional NASA crew launch. There were certainly fewer NASA folks wandering around, although NASA Administrator Bill Nelson was there uh, doing interviews and talking to people, kind of being that NASA liaison, even though this is primarily a SpaceX and Axiom mission. But you could just see all of the Axiom team members were running around like giddy school children ahead of the launch. Everywhere I looked, I'd see a couple of people that work for them, and they're just basically on look like they're on cloud nine. They're having a ball, having a great time. You know, they, these are the people that they've worked with for years now at Axiom Space, and they all know them personally, and it feels like it as you see them and talk to them. They understand, yeah, it's space flight, it's dangerous, it's scary, but their friends that they've worked with are going to space. So that was really nice to see that light side from all of the Axiom people. And then, of course, the SpaceX people who, I have to say, over the last couple of years have been absolutely fantastic now at the Kennedy Space Center. So props to them. Um, were fantastic as well with the excitement and the energy and just being available to answer questions, help wherever need be. Uh, help us with some of the photos that you'll see on our website once this episode gets posted, as well as a couple that have been on our social media. Uh, they helped us with that as well. So, I mean, it was just a very unique atmosphere with the whole private feel and not having the NASA folks running around, not having that kind of, I, I don't want to say like seriousness and rigor, but during a NASA mission, everything feels much more staged much more out to the second and the people that are around there are in serious game mode whereas these people while they're very serious about what they do you could tell they're having a little bit of fun at least while doing it if that makes any sense yeah i was wondering what the vibe was because it, it felt different watching the coverage um, yeah and it, it really a lot did. of the people that they you know were talking to during it were there like the head of Axiom was there and I just saw him wandering around after the launch and he had the biggest smile on his face and was just talking to everyone. And, you know, of course, there's still all of the big people. So they've got their handlers that are trying to escort them around, but they're just loving it. And it felt that way. And again, I'm not saying that the people that work at NASA don't love it. They very much do. And you can tell after a launch, but before a launch, they are all 100% game mode. These guys were about 80% game mode and 20%. Oh my gosh, my friends are going to space. This is awesome. Yeah, and the, you could tell the, the excitement was there. NASA had a minimal footprint from what I could tell at the launch site. Even, um, uh, uh, e even Bill Nelson, who was interviewed 
for uh, for the presentation. He kind of was saying that you know, this is really all about you know all about Axum and all about SpaceX. They they you know we were they were just there as an advisory in an advisory capacity, really. Uh, by the way, but while we're we're talking about how 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 the vibe went and how all that goes. I want to give a shout out too to uh, Benita and Klon, who's been really, really good at uh, at at getting information and getting uh, 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 the press organized and so on. Because I, I, she hasn't missed uh, one step. I mean, she really, really was grand from what I saw on the um, on the pre uh, and post launch uh, press conferences for this. They've also kind of reinstituted something NASA used to do during the shuttle days and which is basically having a, a flight day uh, packet and those flight day videos are available out there on YouTube if anybody wants to take a look at it and they are really really done well uh, again she's bring she's brought a lot of her NASA know-how over to Axum and it it shows I mean it really does she's really doing a bang up job so thanks Benita you haven't missed a step one other little thing that I've noticed was interesting that uh, was still even slightly different from what they did with inspiration four was um, SpaceX now has their own crew suit up room in their Falcon service building which is right near the gate to launch complex 39A, pretty much across the road slash crawlerway from where their horizontal integration facility is, that big barn-looking thing that says SpaceX on the side at 39A. So instead of the crew walking out at the uh, operations and checkout facility and waving to everyone, and then taking the drive, going past the VAB and the press site and their Teslas in this case lately, and going along, they there was none of that. The crew was picked up from the shuttle landing facility. So basically they were picked up from the airport, albeit on site, uh, and then driven in their Teslas, not in their suits or anything, to the FSB, as it's called. And then they just suited up there and then went to the pad. So they there was uh, less of a grandeur. There wasn't really that chance to wave them on as they drove by the press site. Because normally that happens about four hours before launch. So I figured I'll get there for the crew going by. And as I'm about ready to leave the hotel, I see pictures of, oh, there goes the crew on their way to suit up. I'm like, wait, on their way to suit up? Normally they suit up and then drive by. So that's their new thing. So it turns out that all NASA missions that are launched on a Falcon 9 Crew Dragon will suit up and leave from the Neil A. Armstrong Operations and Checkout Building. But any private missions will now suit up and depart from the FSB. Yeah, Sawyer, I missed that. I, I was a little late getting into the uh, getting into the coverage, and I totally missed that. I actually saw the Teslas arriving at, at Launch Complex 39A. Yeah, they didn't drive by the press site. They didn't depart from the operations and checkout building from the ONC. They drove by just in their normal flight suits after getting picked up. Again, basically driven from the airport over to the little hangar where they uh, – got suited up. That's when they did the official walkout, hopped into the Teslas, which said Axiom on the side, as opposed to NASA, as they had for previous ones, and then went up the hill and went to 39A. Wow. So that was a little different and a little unusual as well from the press side perspective. It was like, oh, 
okay, then we won't get to wave and say hi to them. It just blew by. There was maybe two or three people that actually caught them going by. Whereas, you know, for all the other crew missions that I've been at uh, NASA for and at the press site, every single one I've been able to go alongside the road and with a group of us just wave and see the crew go by. Didn't get that chance, which was interesting. Oh, gosh darn. It would have been kind of neat to to have that chance, to be honest with you. But I guess they really wanted to go ahead and, and say, hey, this this is different. You know, we're all business and we just want to go ahead and get the job done. So well, I think I think the real reason is that technically for a crew launch to the space station. So crew one, two, three, those specific labeled ones, the astronauts are property of NASA. NASA, yeah. Until right. they suit up, at which point they then have the ceremony where they quote unquote hand over the astronauts from NASA to SpaceX. Right. So that happens because they're already in the NASA building. That's where they're isolating. That's where they're doing the final stuff with their families. So then they transfer them from NASA to SpaceX in a NASA building. Right. They're not being transferred from NASA. They are being transferred from Axiom. So they transfer them from Axiom again. In a parking lot, essentially. (laughs) So it's a little different, but that was their transfer was they got them off the plane and said, here you go. Here are our astronauts for to launch on board your spacecraft. Have fun. And that's when they took them over to their uh, suit up facility instead. Well, I I, well, again, things are different, but it's it's also, I think, making a statement too, saying that, okay, we're here. Let's let's go to work. And and that's. That's kind of interesting. That, that's it's something new, and but uh, again, I think you miss out on just a little something uh, with that. But again, as you pointed out, Sawyer, the vibe down there was very different. It was very upbeat. It was very excited, and I'm wondering if that's going to carry over to the other remaining three missions. I hope it does. I hope so, too. And again, I think it's also going to be interesting to see what science comes back from it. Now, I realized how mean this is of me. We've made it this far in and we haven't played any of the launch audio yet. I mean, (laughs) how dare we? I know. And this one was very unique. And see if you guys can catch it in the audio. So uh, as we always say, go ahead and crank up your speakers as loud as they go up the bass and enjoy. I don't know if you caught it, but the volume 
if you've heard any of our other launches audios before or if you've been to a launch yourself and heard it the audio gradually increases so it goes up and louder and louder and louder and then all of a sudden in this one it dropped for about half a second and then boom it got much louder that was not us adjusting any audio knobs or volume knobs or none of that in Real life, for some reason, I don't know if it was just the direction of the wind at that moment, because we I was right along the water near the turn basin at uh, NASA Kennedy Space Center, but it just was normal, gradual, like it goes on a curve, like a bell curve, kind of louder than quieter, but then all of a sudden it leveled off and just spiked, boom, really loud, and you could feel it at the press site too. It hit, that one actually hit you for half a second, because normally the Falcon doesn't give you the same chest rumble as uh shuttle did unless the conditions are just right and this one for half a second it just was like boom hits your chest where the heck did that come from got really loud so loud that you could even hear the car alarms as the volume goes down and that's probably only the third launch i have ever heard where the car alarms actually went off and one of those was falcon heavy so take that with a grain of sand but yeah that's how loud it seemed like it got at that moment, which is really interesting to me, at least having seen over a dozen Falcon 9 Block 5 launches. Do you think that that was attributable to where the wind was was going and the wind direction or was it was it something else? I'm guessing wind, but it was just very unusual how it was growing louder, louder. And then out of nowhere, again, it's like if you're using a fader and you just start slowly adding music in and then you coughed and accidentally pushed the volume slider all the way up while you're trying to do it gently. But it was, again, I can't say I've heard any launch that's done that before. I've heard ones that get real get, get that loud quickly, but I've never heard one that starts going gradually normal and then gets loud. Now, Mark, you were a couple of miles away from where I was, actually. So uh, you were over at Playa Linda Beach, if I recall, which is, I think, actually slightly closer to 39A than the press site by a couple, by less than a mile for sure, but within a short distance, a bit closer. And I think you haven't seen a Falcon in a while. So I was just interested what you thought of the launch from your perspective. Well, I think some of the things you've already mentioned were a factor. Um, I was upwind of the pad. And so I think that affected, uh, the intensity of the the rocket launch to start with. Um, I did a recording as well, but haven't listened to it yet. Shame on me. Uh, I guess I'll have to do that just so I know better what you're talking about. Uh, aside from putting your file into the, uh, into the show today, but uh, it was different being on a beach. I know a lot of people see launches from the beaches, North and South of the, the pads. And, it's definitely when you're talking about a different vibe to the uh, to the crowd. When you got people in flip flops, shorts, uh, very few swimsuits because it was pretty chilly that morning for Florida to be on the beach with a good stiff wind blowing. But uh, it was a good it was a good launch. Uh, beautiful weather. Uh, I'm going to have to listen to your recording, Sawyer, and see if I can uh, remember better what I heard. I was just impressed with uh, that Falcon 9. Good show. Yeah, it was interesting to hear your thoughts on the Falcon, because you've seen you know plenty of other rockets. You've seen a bunch of shuttle. Uh, you've seen the Delta IV Heavy. 
So a lot of the rockets that you've been up close and personal with are the big boys. And uh, this is not as big in comparison, but with nine engines can theoretically pack a punch. So what are your thoughts as a uh, second time Falconer? Yeah, well, I need to I need to pick up the pace on view and launches because to be honest, the Delta Four Heavy, I do not remember. I was sick as a dog. I left the launch, got home, and got home with like a hundred and three fever. So I was I don't even really remember the launch. Um, seen quite a few Atlas Fives. Uh, have only seen I think two uh, Falcon Nines. So. I'm going to have to uh, kind of kind of go through a refresher on launches, and then I'll be able to carry on a little bit better of a conversation. But I'm telling you, I, an Atlas V with five strap-on solid rocket boosters, uh, to, to me, that's the favorite outside of the shuttle. Hey, so you saw, I mean, you were with me uh, for the, the, for Delta four heavy. We both saw the, uh, the Parker solar probe go off. How, how does the, that match match with the, what you just, just described, excuse me, uh, with this particular launch? Oh man. Um, I know I'm reaching, I'm, I know it's been a while. Well, I've seen three Delta four heavy launches. Right. Uh, with uh, Orion EFT-1, which is the one that, Mark, you were referencing, uh, with Parker, which you and I were at, and then with the uh, National Reconnaissance Office launch, NRL-44, uh, the end of 2020, I believe, after it got delayed for about five, six months. Um, it's That one fills the air a lot more. I feel like with the Delta Four Heavy, that's all you hear around you for miles. Your whole body yeah. feels like it's being surrounded and engulfed by the sound. Whereas with the Falcon, it feels like wherever you're looking is where it hits you. Like the Falcon comes wow. and it just, boom, whacks you right in the face, right in the chest. And it's quick. It's a quick hit. So obviously you still hear it. And then you still get that sound, the sensation, the crackling and all of that. But it, in my opinion, it feels like if you were to turn around, your back would be getting it and your front would get nothing. Whereas wow. with the Delta Four Heavy, it feels like it, uh, it engulfs you completely in the sound. So one's more powerful, I think, and that's the Falcon 9. It's more powerful, but it's only more powerful in one spot. Whereas something like the Delta Four Heavy is very loud, but it's all around. So it feels louder and more immersive, even though the Falcon probably is. Yeah, thanks for that, Sawyer, because I have not yet seen a Falcon 9 launch, and one of these days I am hoping to. We'll have to see uh, see how schedules open up and getting myself to the Space Coast for uh, for all of this. But yeah, I mean, this is kind of, it's, it's kind of interesting to hear how different each one of these launch vehicles are. And when you hear somebody say that, you know, you've seen one launch, you've seen them all, that, that doesn't that doesn't fly. This was number 27 or 28 for me. There is no no launch that is the same. I can tell you that. I mean, yeah. the Falcon after a while sounds like a Falcon. It feels like a Falcon. You know what each rocket sounds and feels like. But then just when you think, oh, okay, so that's Falcon. I've got it. Then something like this happens where you get that random sound spike and you go, whoa, where did that come from? Or uh, I believe it was Crew 3 where all of a sudden – 
I realized that my jaw was on the ground because holy cow, this one seemed louder than usual. And there was crew one where I actually felt my pants vibrate, which hasn't happened for a long time. So every time you think you get the point of, oh, okay, so that's a Falcon. I know what to expect. You don't. So it's that's, I think, why the launches are so addicting is once you see one, you want to keep seeing all of them because it's amazing first and second there are these slight differences and variations. So I'm sure if you go back and listen to all, you know, let's say the last three Falcon launches that we've had. So that would be Inspiration 4, Crew 3, and this one. If you were to compare all three of those launch recordings, they're going to sound very similar. But if you know what to listen for now, so if you listen for extra vibration or a random loud spike or something that just, as you goes through your car speakers, just makes you go, wow, this one just, you can almost feel it from the vibration of the bass. You might pick out those little differences. To the average ear, maybe not. But if you listen very closely and you compare all three of them, you can go, aha, I hear the slight differences in them. This is why we tell people, go ahead. If you ever have an opportunity to see a launch in person, please go. Because each one of them are unique. Each one of them have their own their own special little signatures as they're going up or anything like that. I mean, Antares is different from Falcon, is different from Delta Four, is different, probably going to be different from SLS. But uh, uh, again, if you get the opportunity, go see one because it'll be etched in your brain forever and in your ears forever. And you are definitely want to go. You're definitely going to want to go ahead and see another. Agreed. And like I said, this is 27 or 28 for me in terms of number of launches over the last 10 years or so. And yet I can still remember what the shuttle felt like. It was that distinct and unique that my first launch is from a shuttle launch. I remember it. STS-135, where we did our live broadcast, I still remember how that one felt. The old Falcons, before they are what they are now, I still remember how that felt. And like you just said, you could ask me, hey, how does a Delta IV compare to a Falcon 9? And I can explain the difference to you of how it feels. So even though it's maybe my 28th launch, you don't forget them. So that's why, I mean, obviously, if you to see one launch is unreal, unbelievable, and amazing, and something that I think everyone should put on their bucket list. Like, it, it amazes me. How many people here in South Florida where I am say, oh, I've never been to a launch, even though you're talking an hour or two by car from some spots. But it's after all of these, I can still tell you the differences between the different rockets, between the sounds with or without SRBs. And I still keep going back for more even with that. Yeah, Mark, um, I'm still remembering. And you had mentioned uh, curiosity. We were on top of the. I believe we were, we were on top of the launch control center for that one, you and I. And there was some, if I recall, there was some sort of shriek almost that the the noise was playing either with the vehicle assembly building or with the louvers on the on the launch control center or something. But that 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 Atlas V had a almost a you know had this this the shriek to it. And somebody even said, you know, what is that sound? Because it, w- it was almost otherworldly 
this is what I'm saying. Each one of these launches have a, has a surprise in store. You know, it's interesting talking about people not getting to launches that's in their, relatively speaking, backyard. If you're in the state of Florida, you're far closer than anybody else in the U.S. is. But uh, I was 25 before I saw my first launch, you know, in this same general area. And I saw one probably a couple counties away during Apollo, but I never saw any other launches. I was 25 years old before I saw the first one. That was STS-1. So it's easy to miss them. It's easy to think, yeah, there'll be another one. There'll be another one. It'll be at a time that I can get off work, get away, you know, get out of town, et cetera. But if you get the chance, by all means, give it a shot. You may have a few scrubs. You may catch your first one and uh, it's definitely worth it. Especially with such a high launch frequency now, especially from the Cape, I believe this was the 14th launch this year so far from the Kennedy Space Center. And that was over the course of 14 weeks. So there's the frequency is definitely up. Indeed. And that might be a good segue into the next topic that we have in store. Before we get there, I do want to stay with Axiom for just one quick second. Sure. And uh, make an interesting note. Um, in case you're unaware, we talked about this the previous episode, the return of the Soyuz carrying uh, NASA astronaut Mark Vandehei, who beat uh, Scott Kelly's record for the longest continuous uh, space flight by an American astronaut, being up on the ISS for about 10 days short of a year. Uh, most people don't realize that NASA did not outright purchase that seat. In an agreement with NASA, the seat was purchased by a company called, this may sound familiar from last story, Axiom Space. Uh, NASA signed its contract with Axiom uh, to allow one of their astronauts to fly aboard the Soyuz. So the way that Mark Van Hei got up and back was technically on a seat paid for by Axiom Space. In exchange, NASA would give Axiom a seat on one of its upcoming crew missions as early as next year. Uh, now, the problem is, if you've been following any of our last two episodes where we've discussed the war going on with Russia and Ukraine, there is a lot of issues with uh, the United States, all United States companies, most companies around the world trying to do business with any Russian company. Now, according to Dmitry Rogozin, who we've always had fun talking about here as the head of Roscosmos, uh, he has said, and he said uh, on Russian television, quote, an American company, Axiom, has not yet transferred the money for the flight of Mark Vandehei. This is a lot of money, 2 billion rubles. They say they have some logistical problems, but this is a decent amount of money. And uh, they did say that the company promised to pay them in May. Whether that's going to happen or not is to be seen. Just so you know, 2 billion rubles at the current rate is approximately 24.2 million US dollars. So again, the rate to the dollar and the ruble is very much in flux as of recently and quite devalued. But um, just interesting that now Russia's saying, okay, we, we flew your man, now pay us. And again, the other factor is that they're requesting it in rubles, not dollars which they can't do right now because of international restrictions. Yeah, exactly. 
And I believe, too, Issa, to, to throw even more uh, you know, gasoline on the fire, so to speak, Issa also announced that they are withdrawing support for a lunar mission that they were going to fly with Roscosmos as well. And uh, uh, some of that is now going to be uh, diverted over to one of the NASA Eclipse missions. And uh, the Russians aren't too happy about that one either. So, uh, again, you've got, you know, exp- you've got uh, uh, Russia still having uh, possession of the, uh, the OneWeb satellites. You still have Russia having possession of some of the ESA materials. And I don't know, if, I don't know if they're going to be returned. I think ESA is saying, well, you know, we've, we've basically hung, hung, hung up at all getting that stuff back. So, uh, I, I, again, the, the fun rages Sawyer and I just, it, I, mean, I don't know where to go from, from there with, with all of this. I mean, the, the, just the, just what's going on. This is a, just such a tangled mess, unfortunately. And, uh, unfortunately it's attached to even more of a tangled mess that I would be outside of the show's purview. But, uh, um, it's all, you know, basically now coming home to roost for Roscosmos, and they're going to have to make some 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 decisions pretty soon. I understand, though, that the, the seat negotiations were still going on, and I believe they pretty much signed up through at least twenty twenty four on those on those seats. And also, that means I believe they're going to have a seat on uh, on either the uh, on on a SpaceX mission in the future, or even uh, a Boeing mission on the fu- in the future. So at least through twenty twenty four. After that, who knows what's going to happen? But again, stay tuned on the whole tangled web that's being woven as a result of uh, of Russia's aggression in Ukraine. So uh, we'll just have to just fasten the seatbelts and keep watching. Exactly. Just thought an interesting note there that most people probably didn't realize that that was not necessarily a NASA direct purchased seat and that the payment is still outstanding. Now, what you were hinting at, though, of... Uh, the increased launch rate at the Kennedy Space Center is, um, we've talked about this before. I remember years ago mentioning one of the first times driving in and seeing that Kennedy Space Center had changed all of the naming and the signage to a multi-user spaceport, which at the time was, yeah, okay, it's marketing kind of thing. Well, this is the first time that we've actually had multiple users up and vertical at the same time at the spaceport. At the same time that the Falcon 9 carrying the Axiom-1 mission was at 39A, the Space Launch System, SLS, that will launch on the Artemis 1 mission was standing at 39B. Part of that was delays because of issues during the wet dress rehearsal that ultimately delayed the uh, Axiom launch by about two days. But uh, as we record this on the night of April 15th, 2022... The uh, wet dress rehearsal that was scheduled for about a week and a half, two weeks ago, 
has still yet to be fully completed and have run into some problems, including during one of their test attempts on today's recording date. Gene, you've been following this very closely, including all of the uh, press conferences and updates that they've been giving out. So can you help fill us in on uh, what's been going on with the wet dress rehearsal and where Artemis One stands right now? Be glad to, Sawyer. Uh, The first little thing I want to add is that after we we left the – when we left the saga – uh, they were getting ready to do the first attempt on the uh, on the, uh, the the wet dress rehearsal test. That did not go so well. The second one also had a little bit of bit of a glitch. The third had an interesting little valve issue. It had an, an issue with a check valve in the uh, interim cryogenic propulsion stage, which is basically the second stage for the uh, the Delta IV Heavy. And uh, this little check valve that is not doing all that well, which is actually preventing them from testing the, uh, the ICPS and making sure that they could go ahead and fill this thing correctly with cryogenics, uh, this little check valve is so small that you can probably throw it in your pocket uh, at least that's the way um, uh, NASA's Mike Serafin described it, and it's it's in the the mechanisms in the uh, the ICPS, but you have to be on one of the platforms in order to reach it. It's about neck high, so what they're doing is they're going to wait till they roll back to the VAB to replace that, and they'll they'll just go with with things as is. So they're not really going to fill the um, the ICPS at all during the, uh, the, the wet dress rehearsal here, but, uh, during the attempt, the last attempt, uh, a couple of days ago, they discovered a little bit of a problem while trying to fill, uh, the, uh, the core stage with hydrogen. They discovered a, a leak near one of the connection near one of the connector plates, uh, on the ground uh, support equipment side, and they decided, okay, let's stop right here because when you have a hydrogen leak, that's bad. That can cause some you know serious things to happen, including well fire and all that. So yeah, you have to you have to stop all you know no pun intended stop all engines and kind of punt, and um, that's what they had to do with that. Now my my thought was, uh, is this kind of related to the same situation that they had on STS-133, if you recall, with the ground umbilical connector plate? That was one of the questions I wanted to, wanted to ask. Unfortunately, they didn't have time to address it. But from what I, I understand, it's actually, and I'm looking through through my notes here, um, it's actually sort of in, in this, this little canister. And they want to go out to the pad, take a look at the canister, see where, where this, this thing might be leaking. But um, if that's not it, they're probably going to have to go ahead. And, and this is just me thinking they may have to go ahead and wait, bring that thing back to the, back to the VAB and sort of test and see what was going on and, and fix it there. Um. There are other options 
to try to redo this wet dress rehearsal if they are able to address the hydrogen leak problem with the uh, the uh, connector plate issue. And I believe um, uh, the the next attempt could be made as early as uh, if memory serves on next Thursday, which I believe is April 21st. Now that is really, really close to the upcoming crew for a launch um, on the, on the 23rd. So they're going to have to uh, sort of bargain and uh, see where they are with, um, with the, with the, uh, with the range and see who gets, gets the range after a certain period of time. Uh, Kathy leaders said in the, uh, a press conference today, however, for crew four saying that, uh, she had a discussion with Jim free, who is the, uh, the exploration systems, um, manager. Nope. Strike that he is part of the, um, uh, yeah, he is part of the exploration systems uh, uh, and development team. Uh, he's leading that charge. And uh, they both agreed that um, it's better off that ISS crew get the range. We shouldn't interfere with uh, getting that going. So um, if anybody's wondering, crew four, the Crew 4 launch is going to take uh, precedence over anything with the wet dress rehearsals. Again, I will go ahead and say that these are tests. So you expect little bugs to, uh, to bite you here and there. And that's what's going on now. They're trying to shake the bugs out of the system. In fact, I believe somebody from uh, one of the, the press sources uh, during the, the uh, wet dress rehearsal conference today asked in the past, is this sort of, you know the, these these little gotchas that keep biting us. Uh, is this the norm? I mean, how many times did it take Saturn V for this? How many times did it take Shuttle for this? And the launch director for the uh, uh, for Artemis One, Char- Charlie uh, Blackwell Thompson, answered, "Yeah, this is you know par for the course for for a testing program," and. Uh, she said that uh, she had a conversation with one of the people, or as they call the graybeards over at uh, um, over at KSC these days, uh, the folks that, that worked on on shuttle. And this particular gentleman worked on STS one, and she had been collaborating with him uh, about you know what issues to expect and and so on and so forth. And he had indicated to her that, uh, yeah, guess what? Uh, we ran up against this about maybe six times before we got it right on STS-1. So is this a rough road? You betcha. It's the first time that they are doing a lot of things. It's the first time they're going through their procedures. It's the first time they're dealing with a lot of this technology. Yes, it's kind of sort of shuttle related but real not really um it's kind of on their own too so you know everybody's saying oh this is all shuttle stuff not really this is some of this stuff is is unique to uh to sls and and to artemis 
So you want to get all the bugs together. You want to and, and get them out. You want to make sure that things are okay before you go ahead and and put put humans on board. And that's what they're trying to do. And in a way, you kind of half expect these little you know pain in the butt problems to to show up. That's the best way I can describe them. And then, but it, but you learn more about the vehicle. You learn more about the equipment you have. You learn more about your procedures. And in all honesty, they did get to, I believe, the T minus ten minute point before they decided to knock off and 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 call it a day because of the uh, um, because of the hydrogen thing. They just could not get um, the hydrogen filled up the way they wanted to again they started a slow fill and when they when they cut to the fast fill on this that's when they noticed the leak and they said whoa hold up we gotta sit back and think this one out and they just decided that yeah it's better it's a better part of valor to go ahead and abandon ship on this rather than than to uh to continue so they they, they acted wisely um but uh, again, you still have some things to think about too, as far as the vehicle is concerned. Uh, when things are when when it's standing out there, uh, Mike Seraphim was saying that um, you don't want to expose the vehicle for too long out there. So I again, I don't know what the game plan is. We're going to find out later on going forward. Um, again, the, the next opportunity they're going to have to try this is. For April 21st, but they are right up against the crew four launch too. So we'll we'll stay tuned. Things are 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 <laughs> they're probably gonna get a little bit more bumpy before they get better, but this is actually pretty good. You learn where your um, weaknesses are, you learn about your procedures, you learn about really the people that are sitting behind the consoles and how how quickly they can react. And um, a lot of the comments I've been hearing sitting in the uh, these press conferences are applauding the individuals behind the console where they take a lot of these these bugs and they take a lot of the these problems that are thrown at them and they they've reacted in an extraordinarily professional way in in addressing the problems and they're able to tackle pretty much anything that that is thrown at them so i think both um uh, mike serafin and uh charlie blackwell thompson they are both extraordinarily proud of the people that they're working with and the way they're handling these things it's just you know the, the equipment is not is not paying, you know, it's not giving them the, the, the credit that they're due. I will add this before I turn it back over to, uh, to Mark and Sawyer, that the vehicle is healthy. Uh, none of this is, is impacting, um, its performance. Uh, so all, most of this stuff is, is again on, on the, uh, the ground support side. Uh, but um, again, we're just going to have to watch the story, watch what happens, and and see what's going on. A lot of the the concern, though, that I got, or a lot of the vibe, though, I got from 
folks uh, sitting in the, the the press conferences was, you know, how are they going to be able to launch w- without testing the uh, the ICPS and filling that? And uh, uh, the answer has been, well, right now we just want to concentrate on the core stage. And if I believe Mike, Mike Serafin was saying, um, we're going to rely if we can't really fill the um, the ICPS stage, what we're going to do is we're going to rely on past history from the Delta IV Heavy, and we're going to rely on the uh, construction record for that particular ICPS, and we are going to go ahead and make the call uh, based on you know previous performance and unexpected performance and take a calculated risk. Um, to see if 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 that that stage is going to perform. So again, stay tuned. There's a lot going on out there on on 39B and uh I think people understand what's at stake and so on and and they're acting accordingly. So uh from you know from from my my perspective, I think they're they're really really trying to do their best with the situations that they get kind of with the situation that the vehicle is throwing at them or the ground support system, excuse me, ground support systems are throwing at them. Uh, but, uh, well, again, that said, and, and they're learning more about, about what they have. It's just, you know, it's kind of critical that, that this, that this particular test get through. I will see. I have some people, uh, saying WDR stands for when dress rehearsal. <laughs> well, yeah, there, there, there's some of that too, but um, one of the things that that bother me a little bit is that there's no commentary. We're kind of relying on um, a uh, the uh, the ground systems uh, Twitter feed to go ahead and and really give a uh, a summary of what's been going on in the past few, you know, the past couple hours or anything like that when following the, the, the wet dress rehearsal. And that's been not only my pet peeve, but a lot of others too. And, and we, we touched on the reasons why this is, and I believe it was kind of ITAR related. They didn't want to, to kind of let in on how quickly this thing fills up and so on and so forth for, for whatever reason, they were saying that you know, a, a potential adversary can still glean some some data from that, and people were saying, "Well, they didn't do this during shuttle, and they didn't. They sure as heck didn't do that during you know Apollo." And I'm like, "Well, they didn't have ITAR during Apollo, and and you know half of the shuttle program." Um, so I, I, again, it, it's it's one of those weird weird nuances that you know we're, we're dealing with in this brave new world um do i understand the reasoning behind it yes i do but do i have to like it eh, not so much you know especially when i'm trying to come over here and tell all of you about what's been going on so it, it kind of impairs me from 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 sharing that story because i really want to share their story too all of the you know the the pain and the agony that they're going through um to get this to get this monster off the pad eventually but um 
again, do I understand it? Yes, I do. But do I have to like it? Mm, not so much. <laughs> yeah, I mean, a lot of the updates now have been occasional random tweets from one of their official ground services account. So, I mean, yeah. it's something, but yeah, I've seen a lot of people asking for the live stream. But then again, how many people are going to sit there for six to eight hours and watch a live stream of them filling up a rocket with fuel that isn't actually getting filled? Just throwing that out there. Well, I'm I'm going to throw something. I'm going to play devil's advocate a little bit. Even if you had someone at a certain interval, say, you know, at uh, 15 minutes past the hour, and you have that individual give just a very quick update about what's going on and what's been accomplished and what's possibly left to go, or if there's a problem somewhere in there, just go ahead and mention that. Um, You know, it it at least would would say, hey, that, you know, we're trying to connect with you guys. You know, we understand the problems, you know, even if, if, if you can just not give the specifics on how many gallons is in, in the, in the core stage, just say, you know, things are progressing and basically say the same things that are being written down on, on this, uh, on the, uh, the ground support systems, uh, Twitter, Twitter feed. Um, it, it would, it would really, really be helpful. I understand. I, I get it. I guess that's what we're going to try and do is to help fill in some of those gaps and blanks as best as we can, given our week by weekly to monthly schedule here. So as much as we can give you, we certainly will. And again, before we take off, I want to emphasize too: this, these are tests. And every time you run into a gotcha, um, I'm going to repeat what Kathy Loiters had said in you know, previous events, and it's not just related to SLS, it's also related to anything really that NASA has been dealing with on a technical side. Um, if you run into one of these little gotchas, it's kind of almost like the system giving you a gift. So you can, you can take that gift and, and understand what's happening and, and see what's going on and study it and, and make sure that, you know, and solve the problem. So then this way, you know, you can later on put it behind you and you have a record of how you solved it. And uh, so if somebody else needs to tackle something quite similar, they've got that record for it. And you've just basically given that team a gift because you passed down the knowledge from that. So again, just brace yourselves, folks. It's going to be busy. And, uh, uh, that, that's that's one of the things also Kathy Loiter said today um, during uh, another press conference is that <laughs> some folks had cascading press conferences today, like yours truly. And uh, uh, that is a testament, too, to how busy that, that Kennedy Space Center really has become. And it, we've come a long way from, from where we were on that Sawyer, you and I on that that very interesting cloudy afternoon when we were looking at Atlantis for her last flight, and she was surrounded by clouds and 
all it basically the the weather was uncertain and and the the feeling at the cape was also very uncertain but so we we've come a very long way from that while we're kind of talking about that i do want to mention something related to artemis and that is that nasa has selected the vehicle that will take crew to launch complex 39b so that they can hop on board artemis when it does come their time to fly crew to the moon uh, they have reached a contract with a company called Canoe. Uh, while it is not a large contract, it is estimated at just under $150,000. Uh, it will be able to carry astronauts with a couple of caveats, must be able to seat at least eight people, have a range of 50 miles, and be completely emission-free. So it will be an electric vehicle that will take the crew there as well as any of the support staff that need to go with them uh, to the launch pad. Now, this would not be the first company to have an electric vehicle take crews out to the launch pad. In fact, SpaceX already does so with their Teslas, and Blue Origin does so as well with the Rivian vehicle, which is also backed by Amazon, and again, Tesla, backed by uh, SpaceX CEO Elon Musk. So this one, though, will... Be a private company. While there have been some concerns, as Bloomberg reported that the company was under investigation at one point by the SEC. Uh, in the meantime, they say that they are expected to begin production on the vehicle this year, hopefully ahead of the first crew flight, uh, which as of now is likely 2024, although it could be 2023, <laughs> depending on what goes on with the wet dress rehearsal and the Artemis One launch itself. Yeah, sorry. I think too one of the other players in that, I think it was Airstream, put out their, um, uh, I guess a a 3D rendering of what their entry was, and they gave the tip of the hat to uh, to Canoe and. Uh, said congratulations and said, well, here was ours. Uh, and everybody was like, they got robbed. This one's better and all this, you know, that that's basically been the reaction, but uh, you know, I mean, it, it's what NASA selected. I believe this is memory search. Sawyer. these guys are, are, are they build electric vehicles, this company. Yeah. They're still a startup at this point, but right. yes, they do. Right. Uh, so far, their stock has been down about 20% this year, if you're looking from a numbers perspective, uh, although it did gain about 5% back after the official announcement by NASA a couple of days ago. And if you're wondering, there is a very slim chance, if any, that would be called the uh, Astrovan 2, as that name is already taken by the vehicle that will be used to carry out astronauts to Boeing's Starliner. Yeah, I, that's, I, I was going to mention that, Sawyer. Thank you. Even though it's a modified Mercedes vehicle that they're using, it is still taking the Astrovan 2 name. For those unaware, it was the modified Airstream vehicle that was the Astrovan that took crew out to the launch pad for years for NASA. And that vehicle is currently on display inside the Space Shuttle Atlantis exhibit at the Kennedy Space Center, if you've never seen it. And I believe the original one that they used for Apollo is also um, on display. I don't know if it's at KSC as part of the Saturn V exhibit in there. 
I'll be honest, I have not been to the Saturn V Center at the Kennedy Space Center in over a decade, even though yeah. I've been to over a dozen launches there. Yeah, ditto here. It's been a while, but I think, think too, the original one is sitting at the, the Saturn V exhibit um, uh, also at Kennedy Space Center. So you, you can you can go off not only and see the one that carried the space shuttle, but also the ones that uh, carried the Apollo astronauts. Just throwing that out there. Exactly. Um, but as we mentioned right now, uh, SpaceX is currently using their Teslas, and that's exactly what will be used for the next crew mission to the International Space Station, which will be an actual NASA crewed mission that will stay up at the International Space Station for approximately six months, and that is the Crew 4 mission. We were given an update on that as Crew 3 prepares to return home and Crew 4 prepares to arrive at their new home in the coming weeks. Right, Gene? Yes, sir. Uh, as uh, I, I was I was kind of getting to that uh, earlier, uh, Kathy Litters opened up her uh, her presentation saying that it's been a, an interesting day uh, for a lot of people in in the press because that day we were it, it's been it's been like I said before, it's been cascading press conferences just in the in in a two or three hour uh, time span. But um, uh, the good news with the uh, the crew three vehicle is that it is currently in good shape. It's it's really, really clean uh, up there. In fact, I believe uh, it was either Steve Stitch or Joel Montabano that basically said that that particular vehicle, it's going to bring the, the, the crew back home to uh, uh, that will be splashing down. Sorry, they're, they're going to be splashing down just off the coast of Flor Florida, if I'm not mistaken. They aim for the east coast of Florida, typically near the Kennedy Space Center. Although if weather prohibits that, they are able to splash uh, down in the Gulf of Mexico in the western part of the state of Florida. But typically... It is within the state of Florida, and lately, for most of the crew missions so far, because of weather, it has been the West Coast near the Pensacola or Tallahassee areas. Yeah, I was going to say near near the the, the Panhandles, but um, so far, uh, the that particular spacecraft is is operating real, real well. Uh, uh, it looks like it's got a shelf life if need be. Uh, pretty much way past where they expected. I believe they, they could go with that vehicle until mid-June, but they'd really want to get, get it home uh, quite quite soon. Uh, the um, just because of the, the beta angles on the on, on the ISS, they've got a got a period of time coming up where they uh, want to get that crew uh, crew home. So uh, but the crew theater vehicles in, in fair in fairly good shape. Uh, crew four is also ready to go go as well. Um, that vehicle is has got some interesting new nuances to it. Um, one of the uh, one of the, uh, the, the the SpaceX uh, managers was there to explain all of that. They are going to be using first one of the a reused composite heat shield that had been used on a previous flight. 
Uh, this is the first time that that has been done, I believe, on a on a piloted mission. Uh, NASA has admitted that they're only going to use, they're only going to allow that particular piece of the vehicle to be reused twice. Uh, so, and I know, you know, Sawyer, you and I had this this conversation before we started recording tonight. Um, I know that. Uh, SpaceX has decided to cap the production of the Crew Dragon to four vehicles at this point. They're not going to be building a fifth. Um, I don't know whether whether or not that's a good idea. They want to divert all of the resources they can to uh, the uh, the development of Starship, but I'm not sure. Maybe two more would would hurt given what's been going on um geopolitically uh you might still need that um that vehicle and i believe the the dragons are good for about 10 flights each uh so we'll just have to have to watch that as as things go on boeing might find itself pretty busy in the future um with uh with their with uh um with starliner because I don't know if you want to leave Starship attached to one of these smaller, um, one of these smaller uh, uh, space stations that are planned. But anyway, I, I digress. Um, Steve Stitch went ahead and talked about the um, some of the other things that they're they're doing. They're also reusing four of the Draco thrusters on this particular flight, even though this is a brand new vehicle. And one of the other innovations that they came up with on on this on the uh, on this vehicle, the uh, Crew Dragon Freedom, is that they are putting in USB connectors inside the crew cabin. I believe that request came from the Inspiration Four crew, so they've kind of modified the the interior of this particular dragon with those USB connectors. So in, I don't know whether, whether or not they've got plans to retrofit the others uh, when they come in, but uh, it might be, it might behoove them to, to do that. Um, to continue a little further, uh, this particular mission on crew four, they have about 275 experiments waiting for them when they get to the international space station on this increment. Um, it's going to be, going to be rather, rather busy for, for this particular crew. Um, Zeb Scoville, who is the, one of the flight directors also indicated that, uh, they're getting ready to go, you know, crew four is getting ready to go. They have crew three coming back and they have an interplanetary rocket sitting outside, um, on the launch pad. So, it's it's an extraordinarily busy time at uh, the uh, the Kennedy Space Center. Again, Jared Matter from from SpaceX said that they still had some final uh, open items that they wanted to look at, uh, just some minor hardware issues, um, but they want to get that that squared away. Uh, these are still open items after the the flight readiness review, but they said they're they're pretty much got them under control. Um, 
somebody also asked during the conference if NASA had planned to to track down um, the Axum crew when they come back. And uh, like for instance, they have the uh, their own chase planes, uh, the uh, the W. I believe the the WB forty, uh, the WB. Uh, I want to say WB forties. I think it's really WB fifty seven. Somebody check me on that, but. Um, these little surveillance aircraft kind of track the the vehicle uh, as it comes down and provide uh, infrared uh, uh, photography and take some measurements and make sure that the vehicle is in good shape, that the drogues uh, pop up when they're supposed to be and so on. And uh, uh, they're going to be doing that in support of the AXA mission to kind of learn a little bit more. Uh, We talked a little bit about the... Um, the parachute issues that SpaceX had been having in the past, so they're going to want to make sure that the you know the uh, the chutes inflate the way they're supposed to. Um, for some reason or other, there there has been a delay in having all four chutes deploy at uh, at once. That fourth chute just kind of uh, you know flutters there a little bit and then then kind of uh, reefs itself. So. Uh, they're going to be watching that that fourth shoot on this this particular uh, return as they are for for crew three. Um, the and another interesting question that came up too, uh, Doctor Thomas Zerbukin mentioned on Twitter the other day that he had preferred to use boosters. Now, if you recall, there was a lot of controversy about reusing the first stage of the Val- Falcon on a lot of these interplanetary missions that NASA had, or even a, uh, a piloted mission um, for uh, uh, if, if you're going to have humans sitting atop of that thing. And uh, he said, I almost prefer them, he said, because, you know, they're, they're tried and true. Uh, we know they're going to work and, and, and so on. And Kathy Leaders was asked the same question about the booster that's going to be taking uh, Crew 4 to orbit and uh, said, do you prefer those boosters? And she said something rather interesting. She kind of took what I'm, I'm going to call a, a very Gersten Meyering, a very Bill Gersten esque position on that question. She basically said that uh, I prefer to fly a rocket that meets our requirements. Uh, you know, and whatever um, it does, I want to be you know extraordinarily clear. I really don't care as, as long as it meets the requirements for that particular launch. So uh, she was took a very very pragmatic stance on on the uh, on reusing a, a booster for uh, for human launch. Um, the, there was also some talk about about again about the heat shield and its. Uh, preparedness, how how much they test it, and again, Jared Matter really, really drove home the fact that SpaceX really, really tests the heck out of these uh, composite heat shield systems. They put it through the same rigors that one would experience during uh, during a reentry process before you know saying, "Yeah, we we'll, we can go ahead and reuse this thing." So, um, again, they they were really, really stressing uh, the fact that 
they put safety first and if something doesn't pass muster they they will not use it and uh because they understand too that uh you know you want to go ahead you want to get the crew up there you want to have them uh safe at the international space station and when it's time to leave you want to bring them safe safe back to earth so they can return to their families and and talk about what they've experienced and the rest of us as well so that that's really their their mission and and they um he he kind of went out of their way to to make sure that people understood that that uh um they are really going through the rigors of testing these things before they they're put on the spacecraft and and good to go i believe they're they're going through the same uh the same process with the draco engines as well um about the pacing on this cuz it it's it's really fast i mean you've got um axum 1 coming home then you've got the crew 3 departure and the you know the crew 4 crew 4 coming back home in fact i believe Sawyer, there's going to be um a period of 5 days where both crew 3 and crew 4 are going to be on board the International Space Station before Crew Three departs. So, uh, you know that that gives both some time to, you know, kind of do you know the handover stuff and you know collaborate on a couple of experiments that still might be in the uh, in the queue and so on. But um, the idea is 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 this scary having this kind of pace? And um, Steve Stitch was was really, really, really quick to point out, uh, saying, hey, this is what we do. We want to fly. So the, the pacing doesn't really, you know, phase us in the very least. We, we want to go ahead and, and make sure that, that we keep flying. So that, that says a lot about, about the confidence level that NASA has, not only in um, their ability to go ahead and, and keep up the pace with um, this dynamic pace that they're on, but also their faith in the commercial crew providers, whether it be, um, in this case, it, it's SpaceX. Hopefully soon it'll be uh, the Boeing Starliner. So uh, I, I think that there's a real big confidence level, at least in SpaceX, where they know, you know, that their their safety culture is in good shape and they're really really testing things um i'm just going through a little bit more on my notes uh but the uh there was an, another questionnaire and i think we went through that um on uh on on the longevity of uh of the crew three three capsule and um also what what took precedence. And as I, I stated before, uh, flying the uh, crews up to the ISS is going to take precedence over the Artemis one test. So if push comes to shove and somebody needs the range, I believe the, the, the ISS side of the house is going to get the range. Um, I think that's really anything Oh, yes. One more thing, and I'm going to revisit the Axum-1 mission. There was some uh, discussion about if they were going to go ahead and receive the same kind of medical attention that the crews 
from the ISS normally get back, meaning they're going to get go through the, the entire full medical examination, so on and so forth, and are they going to be part of any follow-up studies or anything like that? And um, from what I understand, yeah, they're going to get the same treatment as anybody else does coming from the International Space Station. They're going to get a full medical workup and a full medical check before they're released and, and just to make sure that they're doing okay and so on. And I believe there are also going to be some follow-ups too. So we will we'll see how how the uh, the crew responds when they get off of the uh, the crew dragon endeavor in in the uh, in the coming days. I believe they come home next next Wednesday as we record this. Um I guess that that's really all all I had. Oh, that there's one other thing, Sawyer, and we didn't mention this when we were also talking about the the AX one mission. There was a little holdup, if you recall, on the docking, and there was some discussion about about what happened. And I believe it was a camera of some sort on on the Dragon. It basically uh, goes ahead and uh, lets you look at exactly what dragon is looking at and what it's uh what its vantage point is away from the international space station and uh it 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 just basically acts as the dragon's eyes and allows us to see through through the dragon's eyes well that camera i understand had some issues and i believe it was on the ground side not on on the the dragon side and there was some, it, 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 because of that problem, it took a little time, more time for for Dragon to arrive at the uh, at the ISS. So there was some question about that, and what, uh, where did that problem originate from? And apparently, it was a misconfiguration of some sort um, on the uh, the Houston side of the house. So something at the uh, the ISS Mission Control Center was a little bit awry. We were not getting a signal or something along those lines, and uh, uh, it looks like, but though that that problem has been solved for uh, for the Crew Four arrival, so that's that that issue's been closed out. Um, I guess that's really all I had with reference to uh, reference to this. But we're we're looking forward to uh, another uh, change of. Uh, of the guard, if you will, on, on, on the ISS. Uh, I know this particular crew, um, will have, uh, I believe there, there are two veterans and two, uh, two, uh, uh, rookies to, to, uh, to kind of get acquainted with, with space flight. And, um, one of the things that was said by, uh, Tom Marshburn, uh, because they also, um, had uh, a little bit of an interview. Tom Marshburn is a member of the Crew Three uh, crew on currently on on station. He was asked a question about uh, um, any differences and and so on, or or just what excited him about about this particular mission. And he said it was seeing things that he had he had seen before because he he's no stranger to the international space station but it was seeing things through the eyes of individuals that weren't there 
ever before. And in, and that really, really opened his eyes to to certain things. And, and it just, you know, made him kind of get real, real excited about, uh, about flying again and being there. So that might be a good way to, to end all of this. I think that's a perfect way to end all of this. And uh, I think that's a perfect way to end the show as well tonight. So I'd like to thank everyone here who joined us. Thank you for joining us. Gene McCulka. I had fun tonight, Sawyer. This this was a really neat com- conversation. I'm sorry we couldn't get to uh, the nuances of the budget like we promised last time. We we don't have Cat here, but um, we'll see what I can do to to make sure that her schedule works with us next time. And uh, we'll go through a couple of things that I, I'm I'm just really itching to get to, and uh, I, I really want want Cat's commentary on it. So. We'll see how, how things go. But Kat, if you're listening, we miss you. <laughs> and we, we want we want to we, we really wish you were back here. I understand you're working hard, but uh gosh darn it, we miss your wisdom here. Yeah, Kat's still a little busy down under. We promise she will be back very soon. But in the meantime, we also have to thank Mark Ratman for joining us tonight. Thank you, Mark. I am here and I'll be there. See you next time. Here, there, and everywhere. Uh, thank you, of course, for listening and joining us. And as always, have a great day, night, evening, or whatever it may be where you are.